As we are making our way word by word and verse by verse through the Gospel of John, one of the interesting things is John's literary construction. And, and this is why we talk about the synoptic Gospels of Matthew and Mark and Luke separate from John. We understand that the genre of the Gospel is unique to all four of the Gospels as they narrate the story of Jesus, but we also come to understand that they do so in different ways. They have a, a different structure. The synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are basically chronological. Luke tells us that that is exactly his plan. Mark is all about immediacy. Mark is about telling the story as an exercise in biblical theology, the Old Testament fulfilled in the New. But it, it still is basically a reportorial uh, and, and narrative style. But for John, it's about demonstrating the glory of God in Christ from before the beginning of the, of the world, before the creation of the world, and following it through in terms of God's cosmic purpose. John is, is different in his literary approach in the Synoptic Gospels, there are certain literary devices, especially within the parables of Jesus, and that's where you find a certain amount of irony, uh, you, you find a, a certain kind of inflection, a certain rhetorical approach, but that is found in other ways throughout the Gospel of John, not just in the parables of Jesus. John also helps us to understand certain hinges, there are certain clues, there are embedded realities in the Gospel of John, and, and we'll see one of them here, and, and that is the fact that people do not understand until they understand retroactively, and this includes the disciples. The disciples do not understand much, if not most, of what Jesus is doing until after the resurrection, when their eyes are open and, and they come to understand. And, you know, that's kind of the way it is with us, is it not, just in terms of our Christian pilgrimage? We hear uh, perhaps uh, some about Jesus and, and more about Jesus, and we're told that Jesus said this and Jesus said that. But when we come to an understanding of His resurrection from the dead, and, and before that, of course, His crucifixion, all that becomes clear. It's especially true for the disciples as they are walking through the events that are recorded here, and they're, they're doing so in real time. You know, I, I, I try to remind people that when you get to Matthew chapter 16, and Jesus asked His disciples, but who do you say that I am? The interesting thing is that no one had said who He was. And, and so that's a focal moment. And, and Jesus is revealing Himself bit by bit, progressively, until all of a sudden the time is right to ask that question. And of course, it's Simon, son of John, later named Peter, who says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, yeah, blessed are you, Simon, son of John, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven, which is to say, you didn't come up with this. Uh, you did not read this in the Nazareth Times. This is, uh, this is given to you by the Holy Spirit. Well, when we come to John, another of the, uh, another of the, the facets of John's gospel is that People who were here earlier show up again later. Nicodemus is perhaps the most famous example. But in the case of the text we'll consider today, it is, uh, it is also Lazarus. Lazarus, yes, that Lazarus, the Lazarus that Jesus raised from the dead. That Lazarus, that Lazarus is the focus of 
such an amazing account as to how Lazarus was raised from the dead in the previous chapter. But when we began our study of John chapter 12, and, and we saw Mary anoint Jesus at Bethany, and the stage is set for what we don't expect and what many Christians don't even remember from the Gospel of John. So let's look to the passage. This is John chapter 12, beginning at verse 9. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. It's astounding. It's astounding. Before they try to kill Jesus, they try to kill Lazarus. Now, what had Lazarus done? Lazarus had been raised from the dead. Now, it's astounding when you continue to unpack this. Okay, so Lazarus was well-known. That's actually in the text. Lazarus and his sisters are well-known there in Bethany. He was well-known to have died. He was well-known to have been buried. And, and for that matter, that would have required wrapping in the burial cloth and, and all the rest. So he, uh, he, he was well-known to, uh, to have been dead and buried in the tomb. So much so that they assumed rightly, that he would stink. The ritual of mourning is such that the entire community would have been involved in this, in this mourning ritual, okay? But now they know that he's alive, and he's not only alive, he's like stinking alive. He's visibly alive. He's obviously alive. He's alive and walking around. He's alive like he was alive before he was dead. Now, here's the thing. That is the, the living refutation of claims that Jesus did not raise him from the dead. And, and, and this is an issue of apologetics. This, is, this gets back to when uh, I was in high school and Josh McDowell had written his uh, apologetics handbook for Campus Crusade for Christ, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Just out of curiosity, how many of you knew that book? How many of you Okay, so evidence that demands a verdict. It was, it was Josh McDowell who popularized C.S. Lewis's argument that one who claimed to have been raised from the dead uh, was either Lord, liar, or lunatic. And uh, so that's where that came from. And I can remember, uh, I don't remember who it was now who did the song Lord, Liar, and Lunatic, but nonetheless... Uh, it, it became a part of evangelical language. Most people didn't know that C.S. Lewis had originally made the argument. Now, Lazarus was not raised from the dead after having been crucified for our sins. He was not raised from the dead immortal, but he was raised from the dead by the one who would be raised from the dead as the immortal king and lord. That's awkward. I've got to admit it had to be a little bit awkward for Lazarus. Hey, how you? Yeah, I know. I died. But Jesus raised me from the dead. Well, in all seriousness, just imagine the incongruity of it. This is, this is just, it'd be very difficult for any of us to handle. But there is rejoicing, of course, that Lazarus is not dead. He is alive. And it's not only rejoicing, it's an apologetic. I mean, after all, because it's it's one thing to have someone healed from a sickness. Maybe, maybe you could find a way to explain that. All, all the other miracles. But a man raised from the dead is impossible. 
impossible to suppress. So here's where the, the, the narrative in John, as we are, of course, headed for the passion of Christ, it turns deadly. We're told it's a large crowd of the Jews, and, and we, we had known that from the earlier verses in chapter 12 that we have covered. And, and the crowd is there, and what's interesting in verse 9 is the crowd is there not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus. Now, that's, that's really interesting. They were, they were there not just because of him, of Jesus, but they wanted to see Lazarus. Now, there's something interesting about it there about human nature, is there? I mean, just think about it. Here you have the one who raised Lazarus from the dead. Now, this is kind of like Abraham and Melchizedek. Uh, the one who raised Lazarus from the dead is the superior to the one who was raised from the dead. But you know what? The one who was raised from the dead is just too fascinating not to stare at. That's, again, human nature. Here it is. He is a walking, two-legged apologetic and, and, and thus the crowds have come to see him. And, and, and so you don't see this coming, honestly, if you're reading the Gospel of John for the first time. So the chief priests, the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. So they are planning to kill Jesus, but killing Jesus is going to be somewhat ineffectual if someone Jesus raised from the dead is still walking around. So you have to get rid of Lazarus. Now what this means, by the way, is that it will turn deadly for the witnesses and preachers of the resurrection of Christ after he is raised from the dead. You, can't, you just can't have this kind of talk going around unless Jesus is the Messiah and you're going to acknowledge it. So the chief priests, and now notice that this means that their desperation has turned deadly. It's not just rhetorical, it's not just narrative, they're not just using powers of legal coercion, they have now decided to kill now, here we have a, uh, a difficult issue. It's a difficult issue in the year 2020. Who is doing this? Now, there are places in the Gospel of John where he will just clearly say, the Jews, the Jews. Now, this has led to, of course, the charge that the Gospel of John is inherently anti-Semitic. Now, the problem with that, of course, is the historical origin and the context of the Gospel of John. It, w it was Semitic. Uh, but when John uses the phrase, the Jews, he's talking about two things. And, and as you follow through, you'll certainly see this. First, he's talking about the Jewish authorities. And so when it says the Jews plotted to kill Jesus, that, that, that was not a poll taken of Jews in Judea or Jerusalem. That was, that was the priest. But when he says the Jews, it is also a pattern of opposition to Christ. So those are the two things. Now, the fact is that they are both true. Uh, the fact is that they can both be misused. They could be misused, as certainly happened throughout much of medieval European history that continued all the way through the horrors of the 20th century, in which the, the, the Gospel of John and the furthermore, the, the New Testament uh, demonstration of the pattern of Jewish rejection, it, it is used as a slander against the Jewish people, and even, even uh, an, an argument for not only discriminating against the Jewish people, but antipathy to the Jewish people, and then deadly antipathy to the Jewish people. Just notice, that's not grounded here in the Gospel of John, because everyone is Jewish. Lazarus is as Jewish as the chief priests who are plotting against him. But it does tell us that the chief priests have indeed done this. The, the Gospel of John makes it impossible 
not to understand that the Jewish authorities, in this case, uh, remember that, this, that they are basically civil religious authorities. They're not political authorities because Rome is the political authority. Uh, that's a part of the, of the narrative as well. It's Pilate who will eventually make the decision as the Roman governor. But nonetheless, they, they have influence. And th this is the chief priests. They've made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. But notice also in verse 11, why? Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Now, here again's a little embedded bomb. There's, there, there's something here that, that, that you might pass over quickly. So let's pass over it. Let's read it. Let's pass over what we might pass over. And it would read this way. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were believing in Jesus. Well, look at the text. Please look at what we skipped. Look at it again. Verse 11. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were believing in Jesus. That's not what it says. It says, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. That is the first reference in John to the fact that following Jesus will mean breaking away from the Jewish authorities and, and from institutional Judaism. That's the first statement. It's just, just, a, just three little words there. Uh, but that clearly demonstrates that the Jewish authorities understand what's happening. The followers of Jesus are going away uh, from the authority. And, and if that was not clear, say, in John 8, where it should have been, it's certainly clear in John 9 with the healing of the man born blind, which uh, about the, the, at that point we are told that the Jews had conspired that if anyone should follow Christ, they should be put out of the synagogue. That, that'll, that'll show up even later in this, in this chapter. They're, they're put out of the synagogue. So they're, they're, those little words, we're going away, turn out to be very important. This is another hinge, and it's, it's, it's subtle, so you, you have to see it, but again, it's going to make a whole lot more sense as the text continues. So, Jesus is in Bethany outside of Jerusalem. He has raised Lazarus from the dead. Mary has anointed him lavishly, uh, a sign of the sacrifice that he is going to make on the cross. He is there, the crowd is gathered around him, to see him and to see Lazarus, whom he has raised from the dead. The chief priests intend to kill Jesus, but now they also intend to kill Lazarus. The stage is set for Jesus to enter Jerusalem, and that's exactly what we have in verses 12 and following. As we look to the text, the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So large crowd, that's there, notice verse 9, large crowd, verse 12, large crowd, stage is set. Why is it large? Well, it's large because they had come to the feast and they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. One of the things you also see is that Jesus observes the feast. He observes the Jewish religious calendar, especially the feast. So he's going to be coming. So why is... Why is this crowd gathered? What are they going to do? John begins, verse 13, with so. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. 
So it's the next day. We see the same thing in, in John chapter 6, where Jesus performs the miracle of feeding the 5,000 men and multiple thousands of others, and the next day they came to seek him. This is the next day. Now, a part of what this tells us is that Jesus has become the center of attention, not only in Bethany, but in Jerusalem. Now, so, and, and that means Jerusalem is the center of power. It's like saying someone is the, the center of attention in Washington. That's not of interest only to Washington. That's of interest to all of us, the entire nation. That, that tells us something extremely significant is happening. So there's a large crowd. Both words are used again, repeated as in verse 9. There's a large crowd. They know Jesus is coming. So, and again, this is as if, this makes perfect sense. Yeah, large crowds gathered. They know Jesus is coming. So, they cut the palm branches. Well, that, that's a giant so. That's a massive so. Nobody has done that for me entering any town. Uh, nobody does that even when the President of the United States enters a town. What, what is this so? And, and, and why is it so obvious that John can just say so? So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him. If you've been to Rome, you have seen reliefs, uh, which is, of course, uh, sculpture in, in the walls, and you've seen evidence of the fact that when the Caesars led in their processions, uh, they were greeted with people waving palm uh, fronds, uh, as it will say here, branches of palm trees. And so what does that mean? Well, I've heard many preachers say it means peace. Uh, it's a good thing for preachers perhaps to guess it would be wrong. It does not mean peace. It means king, and it means victory, and in particular, victory. The palm fronds are, are, uh, or branches of palm trees, as it says here, are being waved as a sign of victory. They are waved by crowds as Caesar and his imperial troops come back into Rome. It probably predates Caesar to such an extent that uh, this was a, a, an adopted practice. And it, it's also, as you see here, something that the Jewish people have adopted in, in Jerusalem. But in a particular way, this is set up because it makes clear that they are now convinced that Jesus is the Messiah, the Messiah. But it's also clear that the messianic expectation they have is that the Messiah will be a conquering king. And so they're going to welcome Jesus as he comes into the city as if he is a conquering king. Now, hold on just a minute. Let's assume that, let's assume that we know a conquering king and he's entering into the city. Let's just say he's just won the... the The, the, the Battle of Frankfurt, which was an epic world history-changing battle. And, and now he's coming in. Well, uh, Jesus has won no victory. He's got no troops. But he showed himself what no general, Caesar, emperor, has shown himself before, and that is the one who can vanquish death. So this is, this is again, this is a greater, not a lesser. So they are prepared to recognize Jesus as king. They went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king 
of Israel. Now, as you look at that, recognize that there are passages in Isaiah that are referenced here from chapter 53 and chapter 6, but we're going to look particularly at Zechariah chapter 9 in the Old Testament minor prophet, Zechariah. Now, remember, we call them minor prophets because that's Latin for smaller rather than the major prophets. It doesn't mean they're less significant. It means that they are shorter books. So, look back to Zechariah chapter 9, and in particular, verse 9 of Zechariah. We read, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, just continue, let's read. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. For I have bent Judah as my bow. I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. This is a part of the Messianic prophecy of Zechariah. Zechariah, interestingly, shows up at several points in the Gospel of John. It's, a, it's just a very interesting pattern. Uh, evidently, as John is observing the, uh, the life and ministry of Jesus, and especially as the time is being uh, hastened, as we're approaching the death and resurrection of Christ, Zechariah comes to mind. But notice the prophecy of Zechariah in verse 9 in particular, the, the king the Messianic king is going to enter Jerusalem as a conquering king, and as you see here, he's coming to you righteous and having salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, this is what Christians think about in Palm Sunday. This is where the, the, the branches of the palm tree. As a child, Palm Sunday in, in our church, very formal church, you know, we, we stood in the aisle with uh, palm fronds on Sunday morning. And where do we get palm fronds? It was in Florida. We brought them with us. Um, and it was a beautiful thing. I mean, because actually when you see it, you don't have to be told that it's celebratory, and you don't have to be told that it's honoring. And, and the palm fronds, they just kind of naturally even bow, you know, as, a, as the, the king processes. There's something very strange about Zechariah, though. It's of this great messianic victory, but the messianic king comes in on a donkey. That, that's not classical. Sorry, that's gauche. Uh, donkey, seriously. Uh, there's never been like a courageous donkey in cartoon literature. You know, Disney has never had like, you know, David, the mighty donkey. Um, no, they have bit parts, and they're kind of funny. And, well, I mean, donkeys are donkeys. What can you say? And, and this king, however, is not like Caesar or Alexander riding on a white charger that is a horse of battle. He's not only riding a donkey, he's riding a little donkey, a young donkey. This is bizarre. And yet, notice the grandeur 
of what the Lord through Zechariah has held out for Israel's messianic promise. It's of a new age, of a king who will rule on David's throne forever. It is the most spectacular, even eschatological promise. And yet, there's no charger. There's a donkey. Okay, I want you to think about something. Because we're here as Christians. With the entire flow of biblical history before us. The astounding thing here for those who were present and for us, is that this is a donkey. And not only a donkey, a, a child donkey. Well, so that's our king, right? Our king arrives on a donkey until he doesn't. Look at Revelation 20 to 22. You don't, you don't have to look at it now. Well, let's do. Why not? Look at Revelation 19, beginning in verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, pure and white, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury, the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So he rides a donkey into Jerusalem this time, but when he appears, he will be on a white horse. White horse, unlike anything any Caesar ever rode. And all that you see here about Christ coming in judgment in Revelation chapter 19, just keep that in mind. That's, that's not yet what the disciples know, but we know. But back to the donkey, as you see here. John explicitly cites Zechariah 9.9, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold your king. So this is a, a complete affirmation, a complete Johannine affirmation of the messianic kingship of Christ. Your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. And then I mentioned one of the embedded cues in John. It shows up right here in verse 16. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. But maybe that's helpful to us. It's helpful to me. I'm 60 years old. I, uh, I've been studying the Word of God since I was raised by godly parents and taught the Scriptures from my first breath. Um, I continually have the experience, having taught the Bible for more than 40 years, I continually have the experience of all of a sudden sitting back and going, I missed that for 60 years. 60 years, it was there. No, actually, 2,000 years, it was there in the New Testament. And, uh, and I have read it, I don't know how many times, but I understand it now. I didn't get it before. That's a part of what it means to be human. That's, what it, that's, that's why we are disciples. We are projects in the making. But it also has a particular theological key, and that is that the more we understand 
the identity of Christ and the identity revealed in his person and work, the more the details of the Gospels make sense to us. You know, working backwards. Now, now this makes sense. Well, this makes sense. We saw early in the Gospel of John where we were told that John didn't need to be told, I mean, that Jesus did not need to be told what was in man because he had made man. He knows what's in man. Well, that's the kind of thing where you realize, okay, so if we're observing that conversation, we don't know what Jesus knows, but Jesus knows everything, even their inward thoughts. And of course, we also come to understand Old Testament prophecy more. And, and the longer we live, the more we study the New Testament, the more the New Testament's use of the Old Testament, which isn't just Matthew, of course, it's not just Paul. This is John right here going to Zechariah. We go back and say, okay, this makes, this makes sense. We, we, we get it now. But when you sympathize with the disciples, recognize again, they're watching all of this in real time. This is happening. It's only after the glorification of Christ, which means His ascension, that they really understand these things. Well, that's just another sentence that John gives us to help us to understand because we need to know that, by the way, because of how the disciples are going to behave and respond in the chapters that are going to follow. It's clear they don't understand what we now understand because they're living it in real time. They understood it in retrospect. Well, look at the next verse, verse 17. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. Boom! 9.17, we have evangelists. There they are. It, again, one of these little embedded sentences in John. But John tells us, and he's not talking about the crowd right now. I'm sure there are some from that crowd who are in this crowd. But he's talking about that crowd. That crowd turned into evangelists. They, they, they turned into people who went on telling as witnesses what Jesus had done, raising Lazarus from the dead. They how could they not do that? How could they not do that? So this tells us, verse 17, here they are. That crowd, that crowd continued to bear witness. Now, that explains many things. It explains the expectation there in Jerusalem. It also explains the opposition of the Jewish authorities. This is just, uh, this is just too much. But you can imagine how that word would spread. That, that word would, would spread faster than any word the human ears had ever heard before until word that would spread even faster, the resurrection of Christ. Well, let's continue. Verse 18, the reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. Again, John's word for miracle, sign, a sign, pointing to the fact that the miracles are themselves signifiers of Jesus as Messiah, King, Lord, God. Uh, this, is, this is so much here. The crowd is there precisely because they saw this sign and they are bearing witness. But then there's another so. That's so. John just embeds these so's. You know, so they took branches of palm trees. Why? Well, how is that a so? That so demands explanation. Look at this in verse 19. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Oh my. The Pharisees just imagine, going back to John chapter 9 for a moment, the Pharisees, even from the earliest point of the gospel of John, have been in opposition to Jesus. But the opposition is, is now, it's of an entirely different sort. 
This is a statement of the fact that they know they're losing. This is a statement of desperation. That's the only word we can think of. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a word of desperation. They, they are losing. People are following Jesus no longer out of mere curiosity and crowd appeal. They are now following Jesus because they have seen the signs and they believe and they are witnesses to the signs. That's a sequence. They've seen the signs and they believe, and they are now witnesses to the signs. That's a logic that becomes the logic of evangelism. We, uh, we, we, we have come to know that Jesus is the Christ. We have received the forgiveness of sins by His mercy and grace and atonement, and we are now witnesses. It's a, it's a, it's a logic, and, and, and this logic is of deadly consequence to the plans of the Pharisees, and their, their desperation is made in the statement, you see, and it, it, remember, there's a little irony here. This is, this is John. I have to believe that John slightly enjoyed writing this. So the Pharisees said to one another, this is an intra-Pharisee discussion, you see that you're gaining nothing. Look, the world's gone after him. This thing's spinning out of our control, guys. Uh, we've, uh, we've used every argument we have, and uh, the crowds are still with him. Let's be honest, it's going to be really hard to come over, uh, get over this Lazarus thing. It's big. What we can tell, no one believes he wasn't dead, and everyone can now see him. So, we got a problem. And notice the last words, the world has gone after him. Now, again, irony in John, is that really true that the world's gone after him? That's a statement of pharisaical absolute frustration. The whole world has not yet gone after Jesus. This is a little spot on planet earth between Bethany and Jerusalem, and now in Jerusalem, but the whole world will one day bow at his feet, as Paul makes very clear in Philippians chapter 2. They're losing, and you see the, the, the desperation. But then all of a sudden, there's a scene change. Look at verse 20. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. In narrative, this is one of the strangest paragraphs in the Gospel of John. It's a non sequitur. In English, you know what a non sequitur looks like. Uh, it's Latin, of course, doesn't follow. It's out of sequence, sequitur. You say, you know, she woke up in the morning and he ate breakfast. Makes no sense. I'm a one person. This is a, this is a non sequitur. It, it, it doesn't follow. Where's the non sequitur here? Well, we have Greeks who are in Jerusalem. And by the way, this means that they are either Jews who are Greeks, 
there for the feast, or they are God-fearers, which is more likely, actually, uh, that they recognize in the Jewish people the worship of the one true God, and they want to join in that worship. And, of course, they'll appear later in the New Testament, these God-fearers. They rightly recognize that the God of Israel is the one true and living God. But nonetheless, they're there, and, and, and we are told that they had gone to worship at the, at the feast. So, th- these are not just wandering Greeks through Jerusalem. These are Greeks who are there to worship. And so, the non sequitur is this. They want to meet with Jesus. Now, for some reason, they identified with Philip, who's from Bethsaida in Galilee, and they ask him explicitly, sir, we wish to see Jesus. And John gives us this incredible detail. By the way, um, one liberal New Testament scholar was once asked what he thought would have been the strongest argument for the divine inspiration of the Gospel of John. It's very interesting. And he said, from a literary perspective, he said, the hardest obstacle for me in denying the, to deny the, uh, the, the divine inspiration of John, which he did, he did, he denied it. But he said the hardest thing for him to overcome was the resurrection narrative where it is John and Peter who run to the tomb and John just drops the statement about which one of the disciples got there first. And this liberal scholar said, it doesn't make any sense to me that religious propaganda would include such unnecessary details. Well, no, it doesn't. Talk about unnecessary details from that viewpoint. Why do we care that Philip went and told Andrew, Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus? Why why do we need to know that? Philip, Andrew, do do we need them here? Well, yes, yes we do, because this is another demonstration to us of the fact that as this is being lived in real time, and as the Holy Spirit inspired John to write this apostle, this uh, gospel, giving us every single word, every single word of God inspired, every single word fully inspired, it's actually important for us to know the details here, such that this is not just a pattern where someone heard the Jews wanted to meet with Jesus, but they actually went to one of the disciples, they went to Philip, and, and Philip told Andrew, Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Where's the non sequitur? The non sequitur is in the next verse. Jesus never refers to the Greeks. It's like, it's like, whatever. Now, we don't know that he didn't receive the Greeks. We, we don't know that the Greeks never got to see him. We, we just don't know. But what does that mean? So, notice this. It's actually not a non sequitur. It, it looks like one. If, you, if you're just reading this like you were reading a newspaper article, this would appear broken reporting. It would appear to be a non sequitur. But if you're looking at this from the lens of biblical theology, it's not a non sequitur at all. So, so notice that Jesus has been told, that's what's key, Jesus has been told that there are Gentiles who want to see Him in this context, in Jerusalem, as He's just entered, being recognized by the Jews as King. It's not a non sequitur. There are Greeks there, there are Jews there who want to talk to Jesus. What does Jesus then tell his disciples? In verse 23, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. 
Okay, now remember that Jesus has said at several points, when He withdrew from Jerusalem, He said, because my hour is not yet come. He said at several points, my hour is not yet come. Now He says, my hour is come. The, 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 the crucial events of the passion, of the crucifixion, they're, they're, they're going to begin right now. His hour has come. This is what all of human history has been aiming for until this moment. So why isn't it a non sequitur? It is because the arrival of Gentiles in Jerusalem in this context to find Jesus is a sign that His hour has come. This isn't just about... It's John's way of saying without saying this isn't just about Jesus saving Jews. There are Gentiles here. And it's not a non sequitur because this is John saying that because the Gentiles are there seeking Jesus, at that moment, Jesus says, my hour has now come. That's just explosive, even just thinking about the flow of the gospel and biblical theology. Jesus doesn't say that his hour has come until he is told that there are Greeks in Jerusalem there to worship who want to see him. It's just astounding. Looks like a non sequitur. It's not a non sequitur. And look what it becomes the, the door through which Jesus will now walk as he speaks. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, again, we will begin in this same place when we're together next and, and, and see the flow here in Jerusalem. But, but notice that Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Well, what's actually going to happen? He's going to be arrested, and he's going to be tortured, and he's going to be subjected to a false trial, and he's going to be found guilty of nothing but worthy of death. That's, that, that's it. That, in the Roman formula, he's guilty of nothing but worthy of death. And he's going to be crucified in the most horrible execution imaginable. And yet he says, the hour has now come for the Son of Man to be glorified. It's just astounding. So the glorification of Jesus is what he has in mind. Now, it's also important to recognize what we were told about the disciples. Look at the disciples back in verse 16. Go back to that. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about Him and had been done to Him after He was glorified. Well, when, when, when was that? When, when, when was Christ glorified? Well, the traditional answer is that Jesus was glorified, and most particularly at His ascension, and in the statement from the Father concerning the Son. And yet, it appears that in a real sense, Jesus considered all of what would happen in Jerusalem in these days a part of His glorification. He would be glorified by crucifixion. He would be glorified by resurrection. And yes, eventually he'd be glorified by ascension. 
back to the Father. He'll be glorified by sitting at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. All of this is in his sight. He does not say the hour has now come for the Son of Man to be crucified. He says the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And then in the words that follow, he describes in such powerful words the meaning of his crucifixion. As he says, speaking of a grain of wheat, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Lord willing, next Lord's Day, we will start right there and follow through this amazing chapter in the Gospel of John. Uh, it was so good for my soul to, uh, to prepare and to think about being here with you to teach this passage. At the beginning, I hasten to say, of my seventh decade of life, I keep finding things in Scripture that make me feel like I've never read it before. But if I hadn't read it before, I wouldn't find them now. It's the glory also of sharing together the, the study of the Word of God. We learn from each other. We learn for each other. And uh, by the grace and mercy of God, the Holy Spirit makes of us what we otherwise could not be, but by the ministry of the Word. Let's pray. Father, we're just so thankful that these words are now, these very words, in our hearts, in our imaginations, and in our minds, because you gave them to John in order that you would give them to us. Father, may these words take residence in our heart to conform us to the image of Christ. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.